Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. I'm really excited today. We're here with Carl Allen. Carl Allen is an entrepreneur, investor, and corporate deal maker with almost three decades of experience buying and selling businesses. He's enabled over 300 deals and done $47 billion of deals over the last 27 years. Having started his career in investment banking, he has analyzed thousands of businesses, big and small, in 17 different countries and across 23 business sectors. He has assisted hundreds of business owners raising both equity and debt financing, and he's developed a skill set and knowledge he uses to advise entrepreneurs the same way he advised some of the largest corporations. He runs Dealmaker Wealth Society, formerly Ninja Acquisitions, and, and which he started in 2012 to empower entrepreneurs around the world to, to chase the life they have always dreamed of and give them the tools to achieve it. Welcome, Charles. Th- uh, sorry, Carl, and thank you for having you on, uh, ha- being on my show. So no problem Thanks for having me. <laughs> I almost made it to the whole thing for fumbling. It's actually the two things I do is when somebody has a complex name, I butcher it, <laughs> and then <clears throat> if if they, if they have a really simple name, I trip up somewhere in that. And I was just thinking to myself, I made it all the way through without stumbling. But no uh, worries. This is raw, organic, and uh, as it gets, so they they, they get what. They get it as as we we dish it out. So, uh, um, Carl, uh, thank you for being on the show. I'm I'm really excited. I've read a lot of your work. Uh, I'm a uh, I'm a fan, and uh, so uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation we're going to have today. Uh, just so everybody else kind of gets to know who you are and what you're up to in the world, can you start with kind of that origin story? What got you into this, and and, and what sure. you do? Sure. So I I got into the mergers and acquisitions world a long, long time ago, actually. So 1992, I I, I left university. My, my first degree was actually in, in engineering, but uh, all my buddies had gone to work for investment banks. Uh, they weren't as smart as me, but they were earning a lot more money. So I, I, I took the switch and I went to work for, uh, for Bank of America, which was a large American um, investment bank. So I got involved in mergers and acquisitions. I was doing deals with the likes of Boeing, IBM, um, laterly Microsoft. So had a lot of fun and, and, and kind of learned the hard way, um, you know, how to do deals, how to find deals, how to structure deals, and learned the whole concept of, you know, what is what is the leverage buyout or, you know, how to buy a business and use other people's money to, to finance and, and structure the deal. So I, I left the banking world. I went to business school in Chicago, did an MBA, spent some time in private equity. And then we'd invested in, um, in a technology business, which we ended up selling to Hewlett Packard. And as part of that deal, uh, I went to HP. I was an internal uh, director of mergers and acquisitions and had a great time, had a lot of fun flying all over the world you know, doing deals, um, you know, worked on deals. Largest deal we did was about $14 billion. Um, and it was great because HP at the time was getting kicked in the market by IBM, uh, who transitioned to become a software and services company. HP was still really printers and 
computers and things. So uh, we went out and bought a whole bunch of software and services companies. But then my world and my life completely changed uh, 14 years ago to this day. So it's very apt that we're having this conversation. So uh, 14 years ago to this day, I was in a boardroom in Moscow um, with HP and we were buying a business. And at the time, my wife was 36 weeks pregnant with our son, Josh, and he was still cooking in the oven. We thought he had a bit more time to go. And I'm literally in this meeting trying to close this deal. It was a large deal. And my phone's like ringing like every 30 seconds. And it's my wife. So I thought I better answer it. And she's in the back of the ambulance going to hospital. Uh, she'd gone into labor. Her waters had broke. So she said to me, I don't care what you're doing. You've got to get yourself back to the UK as fast as humanly possible, or you're going to miss your son being born. So literally, I ran out of the boardroom. I had my phone, my wallet, and my passport. My luggage and my computer are probably still there because I've never been back. I literally got to the airport, got on a plane, got back to the UK, had a police escort escort me all the way to the hospital, and I made it about five minutes before my son came out. So my oh, son wow. was born. He was tiny because he was four weeks early. And I'm cradling this little guy in my arms. And I just thought, you know what? I'm done. I can't do this anymore. You know, I've got a young family now. They need to be my focus. So I quit. I walked away from a million dollars of bonuses and stock options. And I quit and I retired. I was 37 at the time. Um, I was financially in a really good place. I thought, well, I'm going to retire and be with my family. And I lasted three weeks. Three weeks in, I'm freaking out. I sat down with my wife one night. We opened a bottle of wine. And I said to her, like, what am I going to do? She said, well, your biggest strength, your biggest weakness. You're one of the best deal makers in the world. You know how to buy and sell companies. Uh, just do that. Why don't you become a business broker? So I thought, cool, okay. So I set up as a business broker. I found a business to sell. It was a, a UK transportation company. It's doing about $5 million in revenues, very profitable. Um, found a buyer, big corporate competitor to acquire them. And I've worked on that deal for about three months. And the night before the deal was closed, and I was up for a two, $250,000 success fee, as you know, brokers tend to make most of their money when a deal transacts. So I'm you know, waiting for this big fee. And it's the night before closing, it's a Thursday night, and the owners of the business called me and said, hey, we're pulling the deal. And I'm, no, can't pull the deal. Been working on it for 90 days, and I got this huge, not earned any money for three months, so I got this huge big check coming to me. So they said, well, hey, come down and we'll talk to you about it. So I drove down, and it's lashing with rain, you know, middle of the, you know, late evening, drives down, and they called an all-company meeting. And I walked into the business, and it was a transportation company with loads of vehicles, but also had a warehousing facility as well. So we're in the warehouse, and all the drivers are there, and all the admin staff and the salespeople. And they said, look, we're pulling the deal because the new owner has come in today and basically given us a list of names. They want us to fire everybody. They don't want any of the employees they don't want the bit. They don't want the building. They're going to change the name. 
They just want the customer list uh, and they want the assets. That's all they want. And whilst you've got us a lot of money for the business, we can't retire to retirement sell. We can't retire knowing that all of these people, and they're all in the room, all these people that have so loyally served us for such a long period of time, um, we can't put them into harm's way. And they said something to me, which changed the course of my life. They said to me, we care more about the future of the business than we do about the money that we're going to receive. And I don't know what possessed me. I looked at them and I looked at all the people and I said to them four crazy words. I said, I will buy the business. And they looked at me and they looked at each other and they said, you will buy the business. I said, yeah, this is an amazing business. It's stable. It's generating tons of cash flow. It's got a super clean balance sheet. There's loads of great prospects for it. I've been working on the deal for three months, so I know everything about the business. I said, I will buy the business. I can probably get you about half of what you would have received selling it to a trade buyer. I can pay you some of that as a closing payment because I can finance a lot of the assets. And then we'll do a profit share for, say, three years. And then I pointed at the sales manager. I pointed at the operations manager. And I pointed at the financial controller. And I said, I'm going to give the three managers 10% of the company. And we'll buy the business together. And we'll run it together. And they looked at each other. And they looked at me. And they said, OK, we'll give you 30 days. Bearing in mind all the legals have been done, all the due diligence has been done. It was just a case of talking to a bank. Um, they said, we'll give you 30 days. If you can pull it off, you can have the business on those terms. So I got in my car, uh, bearing in mind, like, people are hugging me. They're, like, high-fiving me, like the savior. I got in my car. I thought, what on earth have I just done? So I, called my <laughs> wife. I said, honey, we're buying a transportation company. She's like, what are you talking about? You had one job to do which was to sell it. Why are you going to buy it? So I explained the rationale. I said, we'll make a lot more money buying this company than we will selling it. So she said, well, I'll tell you something, Mr. Wall Street. And that's that was my nickname. She said, do the deal, but you're not spending any of our money. Find a way to get other people to fund this transaction. So that's that's what I did. So next day, I called the, I called my lawyer. I called the bank. I raised the money, and within about three weeks, I'd closed the deal. So I was the owner of that business. We did very, very well. And then about three years in, once I'd cashed out the previous owners, the three managers that I partnered with, they did a management buyout, and they bought out my 70%. Uh, we'd done some bolt-on acquisitions at the time as well. So that was a phenomenal deal. And that taught me one very, very important lesson, that on Wall Street, deals are primarily about financial engineering, right? On Main Street, deals are primarily around seller psychology. Numbers are important, but they're not as important as an owner, in most cases, finding a safe, trusted pair of hands that will protect the employees, protect the legacy of the business. And, you know, I've lost count the number of sellers that I've met who care more about the name of their business than they do about the size of the check. So 
that set me off down a path of acquiring businesses, businesses that um, I was interested in. So they were in my lane. I could add a lot of value. Um, they were generating lots of cash flow, which great if a business has got assets, even better. But if it's got cash flow, then you can raise financing. The financing is actually the easiest part of a deal. If it's generating, the more cash flow the business generates, yes, you'll pay more, but uh, the more financing that's available. But for me, it was finding a distressed seller of a good business, a seller that was highly motivated to exit retirement, sickness, death, boredom, frustration, burnout, whatever reason. And then me riding in as a white knight and basically building a deal around what was valuable to them, which was legacy, trust, safeguarding, all those different things. And that's one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of business buyers make. They think it's all about the money. In around 20, 25% of cases, money's all that sellers care about. You know, I don't buy those businesses. I don't. I go and find businesses that sellers, they really care about who's gonna buy it. They don't wanna sell to a competitor per se. They're not interested in private equity. They want safe pair of hands to continue the journey, to continue the legacy, and will take the employees along with them. So that's what I do. So I've done tons and tons of those deals. And then about four or five years ago, um, I was just getting inundated with people saying, hey, can you teach me how to do this? So I built uh, a coaching system. I distilled all of my principles, all of my methodologies, all of my case studies into an implementation system so that anybody um, with a basic understanding of business can leverage their skills, leverage their experiences, leverage their passions, and go buy small businesses rather than making what I think is a fatal decision of starting a business from scratch. And the data is crazy. So in 2020, there were nearly 7 million Americans that started a business from scratch, 7 million, and 96% of those businesses will fail. Yet there are today about 2.5 million small businesses for sale in the United States, and about 1 in 11 of them will sell over the next 12 months. So what I'm trying to do is connect those two communities together by giving all of the buyers out there the tools, the strategies, and the access to financing so that they can go and find the perfect dream business for them and then structure it in a way where it's a win-win. It's a win for the seller, it's a win for the buyer, and then giving them the tools to then accelerate and grow that business either organically or through acquiring other businesses into it. So that's what I do. And I don't just teach this stuff. I do this stuff as well through my private equity company as well. That's awesome. So I picked up <clears throat> that it's as much about the legacy of the brand and the name and the, what you're going to do with the employees and how they're going to be treated. And I've only been like talking to business owners now for about two years, uh, but I totally get that. I totally see that. I've only had one or two business owners that were interested in the price and both case two, both cases, it was because there was a divorce and there was some um, 
requirements, I guess, in the case that they didn't like the valuation. They had to sell it for something uh, close to the professional valuation uh, because, you know, the judge was worried that they were going to dump it to, you know, get vindictive. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, but yeah, it is very common, especially businesses that are second and third generation. They want to know what you're going to do with the name, right? Yeah. They want to know, you know, the brand they spent, you know, two generations, three generations building. They, they don't want to see it go away right away. And, really, quick, uh, really quick little case study for you. So okay. 2018, I bought a marketing agency in Burbank, California, near Hollywood. And the, the, the seller, so this was a business, um, multi-seven-figure revenue, profitable, and the seller had um, you know, an asking price for the business. And the broker told me uh, she wanted all the money up front. It was a retirement sale. So I went and had breakfast with her. She cooked me breakfast in her house on Mulholland Drive overlooking, you know, Studio City. It was beautiful. And I'm sat there. And I asked her the question that I always ask sellers. I, I said to her, what is more, what is really important for you in this deal? Tell me what this deal needs to look like. Now, normally you would expect somebody to say, well, I want a million dollars, I want half a million dollars up front, and I want 8% coupon on my seller financing. She said, three things, Carl. Number one, you can't change the name of the business. I went, okay, well, it's crazy. If you buy a business as a going concern, you can't change the name because the name's got a reputation in the market. The name's got brand equity. So it's silly to change the name of the business. Number two, she said, you can't change the logo. Okay, never heard that before. And I've seen pretty much everything. I said, okay, explain that to me. She said, well, in 1985, when my husband and I started the business and the husband had passed away several years ago, she said, our logo, and it wasn't a great logo, if I'm being honest. She said, the logo won an international design competition, which in the 80s, it probably would have done. 2018, it probably would have come last. But anyway... So she said, you can't change the logo because we're really proud of the logo. And she said, number three, you can't fire any of the employees. They're like my family. And I want all of those three things written into the legal documents. I went, okay. I said to her, well, if I can do all the, those three things, can I pay you in installments for the business over a three-year period? And she went, yes. So I'd given her what she wanted, which for me were easy things to concede. Now I was asking her to do the deal on, on my terms. She said, yes. And then she said, oh, but hold on. I'm going to have some closing costs. I need to pay my broker. I need to pay my lawyer. Like, how's that going to work? I said, well, guess what? I will cover those costs because I was acquiring the business with surplus cash um, on the balance sheet that I was inheriting. So I had the working capital to cover all of her costs. And she hugged me. She's like, this is great. So we did the deal. And when you're closing a deal, if you're not raising any capital, you can close deals very, very, very quickly. And what I do is if I'm buying a business purely on a seller financing structure where there's no external capital going in, I'm very, very light touch on my due diligence. I'll do my legal due diligence, so I'm making sure I'm buying something that's safe. But 
but you know, am I going to go through and do bank recs and tax audits and all those different things? Not really, because if I do the deal and I find out I've, I've acquired a basket case business, I'll just give it back. Because as you know, when you've got a deal that's primarily seller finance, as a buyer, if you default on those payments, the seller has the right to take the business back. Um, so for me, that's always been my ability. And what I find is really powerful in the market is there are a lot of sellers out there. They would rather forego closing payment or a speed of transaction, that it's a super quick deal. You know, they're not crawling forensically all over a billion documents for six weeks. The deal can be done fast. They can retire or do what they're going to do. And then you can do the majority of the due diligence once you're in the business. Because even if you do external DD, you're never going to find everything that you want to find out. Once you're in the business, you can look under the hood in a lot more detail and, and get everything that you know uh, and get get the finance team that's in the business or the CPA that advises it to, to do all that for you. It's like, hey, so tell me what I really need to know. Okay, well, there's this. All right, well, okay, that's not a deal breaker. We're good. Let's keep going. So, um, so you're right. The name, the brand, the legacy, the culture, the employees, they're huge. Not for everybody, but for the majority of the businesses that, that I speak to. So I was talking to a business that had been around for 63 years. <clears throat> I'm not going to say their name because uh, I'm hoping it comes back around. <clears throat> but anyway, it was a third generation. Two daughters are running it. And one of the things they were really concerned about is like keeping the name around. And uh, they, they're ready to retire is the reason they were selling it. And the interesting thing is... Uh, when I slid the deal across the table, they had some financial issues. They had uh, close to $4 million in debt um, on a company that's making $13 million in revenue and dis dismal profit. Like they, they just weren't running it very well. And they knew that. Um, they had some problems a couple of years ago with a, a relative embezzling money. I'm pretty sure, and if they're listening, I'll, I've already told them this, so I'm not afraid mm -hmm. of them finding out. I'm pretty sure that the, one of the sisters was embezzling still, oh, and that's yeah. why the, the books are such a mess. But she said, you know, one of the things that she said is, um, you know, I understand that you're concerned with my sister, like, but she's the one that needs a job for the next year until she can, you know, until she hits 65 or whatever, it can retire. I was like, okay, I, I'll pay her what she's making now, which was like 45 or I mean, maybe it's 52,000 a year. But I promise you, she's not touching the books. So long as you're okay with that, she's no longer an accountant. We'll find some. I don't care if it's sweeping the floors. For a year, I'll eat that cost. She can stay there. Yeah. She can show up to work. Or I might even just put her on, you know, as an advisor. I call her up when there's a <laughs> when there's something I need, you know, questions about, and I'll just pay her not to come, not and show up. But you know, but as long as I pay her, maybe I just you know cash her out and pay her the fifty-two thousand up front. Yeah. But <clears throat> you know, would that work? And she's like, okay. What stopped that deal was the uh, the IRS. Uh, the one of that big chunks of ch uh, cash they owed was you know almost a million dollars, nine hundred and something thousand to the IRS, and they were wow. doing these quarterly meetings with them, or, or every so often they had to meet with them. They went to meet with the IRS and their banker and told them that they were going to sell it to us, that we were going to take care of that and take responsibility for paying them on those structured payments they were paying. And, and the IRS said, you're not transferring any assets until we get this done. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, you know, they brought in some other people to help them do that. And I gave them the attorney that I'd already lined up to negotiate that down because they never even tried to like argue it or clean up the books and resubmit it or anything. 
So I'd already found a, a local attorney that really good at doing tax negotiations, but uh, I gave them ours uh, and uh, we stayed in touch, but uh, they're still working on it. I don't, I haven't talked to them in a few months, but you know, the interesting thing was, and I'm going to ask you this is when I slid that dollar down deal on this, uh, two things were funny. Uh, one of my, one of my partners in the deal is a friend of mine. He's uh, in law school. Uh, he's really good with business and about to graduate law school. He's also retired Marine Corps. When I slid that, when I, when I pulled out the manila folder to slide that deal across the table to explain it to him, his face turned green. He put his mask on. He got up and went to the bathroom. Now, this guy is a retired, you know, like he's a medically retired Marine guy. And he, he got up and left the room. So I still torment him about like, you know, turning green when I slid a dollar deal across the table. But, you know, the interesting thing they pushed back the hardest on was I had an unwind clause. Right. Even on the dollar down, if there's more skeletons, because we hadn't seen a good set of books or anything. This thing was really, you know, their financial uh, accounting was just garbage. Uh, it was bad. And uh, so I was like, OK, we'll take this on. I'll bring my accountants in. We'll straighten it out. But I have 45 days. If we find something I, we just can't fix, I get to give it back to you. So we had a 45 day unwind clause. They were more concerned that I was going to have that I had the right to hand it back to them at 45 days. Yeah. Than they were that I was only going to give them a dollar down, and you know, and pay them. And I was, I was thinking. I think we took a sixty percent. We we're going to leave forty percent on there because we were yeah. going to clean it up. Uh, yeah. I'd already found another. Uh, it was a concrete company. I found another one that made similar products that were for sale, much smaller. They only did three million in revenue, but they were doing a thirty percent profit margin. So my wow. goal was to have their, and they, he had already kind of stepped away and had a general manager running it. So I was going to have their general, and they were 40 miles apart. So I was going to have the general manager run both sites is what I was going to do. Yeah. Right. But my question is, when you, when you say you can, when you do minimal due diligence, uh, when they're going to do an all, all finance structure, do you put an unwind clause in your, in your uh, contract? Or um, you just I know don't. that you can? No, I, I, I don't actually. Um, I, I, I don't. Although in your situation, um, that you'd mentioned, then, you know, that, that would be a red flag. But like for me, you know, I'm not signing any personal guarantees. I'm not raising any capital. For me to do a super quick deal, it's quicker for me to buy the business, then go in and do the due diligence. And then if I find something like nuclear, um, I'll either give it back or, you know, if they're not prepared to take it back, then, you know, I'll just liquidate the business. But that's never happened to me um, ever. And I've done lots and lots of deals where I've got in super quick like that. I'll always do some legal due diligence. Um, and, you know, when I'm doing um, when I'm doing dollar down deals like that, then I'll always typically buy the assets. Um, if it's a cash flow in business that's super doing really, really well, and I need to go out and I need to raise external financing for closing payment, then typically I'll always buy the legal entity. Um because in, in most cases, um, it's more tax efficient for the seller to do a deal like that. And secondly, it's easier to raise capital uh, when you can leverage the credit history of the legal entity. Um, in the UK, it's impossible to raise financing, actually, um, on an asset deal. In the US, it's a lot easier. But still, I think it's cleaner to take the legal entity with you um, in, in, in most cases. But you know, if you're just doing a, a deal where... It's purely seller finance. So you've not done the due diligence. I'll just buy us by the assets. So you, <clears throat> you do an asset purchase instead of buying the LLC itself. That's cool. Yes. So that's what we were going to do with this one, just because they had a lot of issues there. 
um, they actually had a, a pending, had three pending lawsuits. The IRS was one of them. Yeah. Um, the other two were uh, vendors that they had not paid. Uh, they settled one of them out before we even got to that, you know, the offer table, the LOI, and the other one they were working on. But uh, they had about out of that four million, a million of it was the IRS, uh, and two and a half, I think, was um, uh, accounts uh, payable, like you know, uh, hard, uh, materials, and then a portion of it was some loans and stuff they had taken out. That they had to pay yeah. back. I, I would never do that deal. I, I think where where there's legal stuff happening on a business, or there's a divorce situation mm-hmm. which you mentioned before, or there's been a shareholder death and the deal's gone into like a probate scenario, I just walk away from those deals because uh, there's so many deals out there. There's so many businesses for sale. I, I just want an easier life, clean, quick, no hairs. That that's kind of how I roll. And what I what I coach my students through is is the is the art and science of building the deal origination funnel, um, so that you're getting access to deal flow like every single day, and you have a super quick process of vetting those deals against your deal specification, and then you know weeding out the ones that you know are going to be too complicated or too time consuming, um, because you you can burn a lot of time trying to chase the perfect unicorn deal. Um, you know, the perfect unicorn deal is the one in 11 businesses that sells really quickly and sells for a premium valuation. Um, yeah, you can do those deals. But for me, I'd rather buy a business uh, where I can pay a, a discount to market value, structure it in a creative way, and then, you know, add a lot of value to the business very, very quickly. So for me, it's like buying a house that needs a little bit of fixing up. If you buy a pristine developer-ready house, um, it's going to be harder to increase the value. Uh, if you buy a house that you know you can do a quick remodel on it, to coin a real estate analogy, and do that super, super quick, you're adding a lot of value to the business quite quickly. That's kind of the perfect deal for me. So it's never a deal. It's got to have cash flow. It's got to have you know, good systems and processes, you know, customers that love the business, uh, big growth opportunity. Um, you know, that's like the perfect deal for me. So in that, in that scenario, you buy quick flip, what we would call quick flips, the easy houses that can flip pretty easily. They just need cosmetic, uh, you know. Yeah. Deposit, you know. But having said that, you know, typically I'll hold on to a business for at least two years. Okay. So I'm not, a business flipper where I'm in and out within 60 days. You know, I want to be in the deal for absolutely at least 12 months, uh, ideally two or three years. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a partner in a business that I've owned for seven years still. Um, And I, you know, it would take an astronomical multiple for me to sell that business. Uh, But then sometimes I'll, I'll get bored. I'll buy a business. I'll make some money out of it. And then I'll just get fed up with it. I'll end up giving it to management or I'll sell it. Um, you know, I'm totally, I'm totally cool. And often when I sell businesses, um, I'm happy to take seller financing. You know, awesome. so I'm, I'm happy to let a buyer pay me over time, knowing full well that if they default, I could just go and take the business back. And I've done that a couple of times. And then I just find another buyer. I say find another seller. Um, so I've definitely done that. But it's really interesting because... You know, not every business that you look at is actually sellable. 
there, there are a couple of things for me that sellers fail to do before selling a business. And, and, and I wish there was more education on the sell side to get people in that, in that kind of frame of mind. There's a, there's a very phenomenal gentleman up in Canada called John Warrellow, who has built a wonderful uh, program called the Value Builder System. And he's written a couple of great books. Uh, he's a super guy. I don't know him all that well. I've come across him a few times. I've been on his podcast, Built to Sell Radio. But he's developed a, a methodology for making businesses a lot easier to sell. Because the, the two things that sellers fail to do before they go to market is, is number one, they, they just don't get ready. So all their financials are not in order, their legal docs are not in order, um, and they, they're working in their business, not on their business. So if you own a company and you're working in the business every day, all the processes are in your head, all the sales relationships are with you. You can't really sell your business unless you're going to sell it and stay there because the business is not going to work if you're not there. So that's one of the biggest criticisms I have of a lot of small business owners. They don't ready the business for sale. They don't groom it for sale by extracting themselves from the day-to-day -day operations so that if somebody else buys it, it works you know, just as well. The second thing that a lot of sellers fail to do, and this is really important, is they don't figure out who their ideal buyer is going to be. So there's only three different types of people that can buy a business. You've got individuals or, or people like me, you know, small teams that are coming in and are buying the business. You know, we don't really have any leverage. We don't have anything that we can bolt into per se, unless I'm bolting a business into another one in my portfolio, but we're offering that legacy driven, safe pair of hands, employee protection strategy. Now for a lot of sellers, that's what they want. Other sellers, um, they'll want to take a partial buyout, stay with the business for a few more years, have access to other working capital, and then get a second bite in the cherry if they sell later. So that means you have to sell to PE. That's the only way that you can do that strategy. And then strategy three is you don't care about the employees. You don't care about the legacy. You don't care what happens to the business. You want the highest valuation, and you want as much as you can physically get at closing. So you've got to sell to a trade buyer, a competitor. Because as you know, a trade buyer can get lots and lots of synergies by acquiring another business. They can cross-sell products and services between the two customer bases. They can strip out tons and tons of cost. My first deal story, the transport business in the UK, that trade buyer was basically buying the business at a gross margin level. It was not buying any overhead. It was just buying customers. Um, so for them, they were prepared to pay a lot more money because the deal was going to generate a lot more cash flow for them. So sellers, before they pull the trigger, need to determine who they're going to sell to. And once they've done that, let's go through a process of polishing up the business and giving it that curb appeal. All the documents in are in a row. As the owner, I'm not involved in the day-to-day. -day. Someone can come in. And someone can take the business on and whether I'm in it or not will, will make little to no difference to the success. And I think if, if all sellers went through that process, um, 
you know, we, we, it'd be a lot easier to do deals. But then I think on the flip side, I think you'd see valuations going up. Um, so it, it's kind of, it swings around roundabouts, isn't it? You know? Right. And I see that a lot. I have, uh, you know, business owners will reach out to me and, uh, I own a small pest control company, which I bought before I learned how to do this stuff. <laughs> bought it wrong, bought it too small, and uh, end up having to work in it occasionally to help it keep moving. But uh, I did it to employ a couple of relatives. But uh, the, you know, when you buy when you buy these businesses, are you looking for a certain size of company? Like in my mind, I'm looking for yeah. something that has like ten or more employees because after that, there's probably somebody there that can run it when the owner wants to leave. Right. If it's not got more ten, more than ten play, players in, in in there, they probably don't have the systems and processes for that owner to easily walk away. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, so for me, that that kicks in in my experience at around a million dollars of annual revenues. In some industries, you can get away with maybe five, six hundred, particularly in the SaaS market. Uh, you know, Amazon FBA type businesses. I bought a few of those. Um, so, but generally around a million dollars of revenue, you've got employees, systems, processes, and, and some kind of culture, which makes a difference. But then on the other side, I very, very rarely go above 10 million. And I would say my sweet spot's in the one to $5 million revenue range, which a $5 million revenue business is still a very large business in my opinion. What I find is when you go above five, and certainly when you go above 10, there's a lot more kind of buying competition in the market. And I think you have sellers that are less distressed, they're owner investors, not owner operators. They've got all of their systems and things in play. So for them, it's about value maximization, and they're not as hung up on that kind of, that cultural transition. Um, and and what and you'll know from valuation, the bigger the profit, the bigger the multiple. Uh, so deals, you know, certainly above five or ten million dollars in revenues. Um, whilst there's a lot of financing to do those deals, you end up paying a lot more money in terms of a premium, just because there's a lot more people out there. It's harder to justify the legacy acquisition at that kind of level. So for that reason, I, I, I typically stick into the one to five range. And, and when I'm coaching my my students, you know, that's where I have them, you know, really focus. And, you know, I, I, I say to my students, you know, to find the perfect deal for you, it's only got to tick three boxes. Box number one, it's a deal in your lane. You know the industry, you're passionate about it. You can add lots of value. Uh, number two, it's a distressed seller of a good business. And number three, it's got cash flow. If it's got all those three things, those deals are really easy to close. Um, and, and size, I think, for me, is um, it, it is really important. Because uh, this kind of, you know, one to $2 million deals in terms of revenue, not a lot of buyers for those businesses, uh, especially a trade buyer level. Because, you know, if you're a trade buyer, you're doing $50 million in revenues. Are you really going to buy a one to $2 million business? No. You want to buy a ten to fifteen million dollar business. It takes the same amount of time. It's actually, quicker the bigger the business because the data is a lot more readily available. <laughs> it's not it doesn't take the seller two weeks to pull all the info for you. It goes back to my point. A lot of sellers they're just never ready. They don't they never have everything for you. And brokers 
don't tend to do a great job of, of, of readying them. So like at M&A, it's like an ecosystem, and, and this works in every industry. You've got the billion-dollar guys, the $100 million guys, the $50 million guys, the 10 to $15 million guys, and then everybody else. So I'm playing in the everybody else range, and what I'll often do is, is sweep up a lot of smaller businesses kind of in like a roll-up structure, and then I'll go and flip that in time you know, to the larger buyer. That's awesome. Let's jump in real, real quick. Uh, I haven't had anybody on the show that really knows that LBO, what they call LBO, the leverage buyout, and uh, raising capital to give the owner uh, a check. So can you give us a little detail? Like, uh, Are you familiar with the SBA loans and what the requirements are? Is there a certain credit cool. score or yeah. experience level or anything? Yeah, absolutely. So there's actually six ways to finance a leverage buyout. I'll tell you what they are very quickly, and then we'll dive into uh the sba so number one you can use surplus cash so if the business has got more cash on its balance sheet than it needs to trade the business you can use that you can use seller financing uh and also earnouts which as you know are like bonus payments based on um higher than anticipated future performance you can leverage lines of credit uh if the business has access to existing facilities that it hasn't used you can use asset-based lending, so you can leverage real estate, accounts receivables, inventory, IP, even plants and equipment. Uh, you can go raise equity. So for the sorts of deals that I do, it's more angel investors. And the benefit of an angel investor in a deal is not only are they bringing capital to the table, they're bringing knowledge and expertise, which as the new owner of a business, you can leverage uh, as you improve the business in the market. And then number six is cash flow lending. Um, a lot of people, there's a myth that if the business has no assets, you can't raise capital. It's completely not true. Technology businesses don't have assets, but they have lots of cash flow. A SaaS business, an Amazon SBA business, there's funders out there that all they do are SaaS deals. All they do are Amazon deals or online deals. You can get up to three turns on the annual free cash flow uh, or you know SDE as it's sometimes called in the states, you can get three turns on that and amortize that um, over five to eight years if you're doing a traditional lend, or if you go down the SBA route, the seven A loan is typically a ten year amortization. The five or four loan is a twenty five year amortization. To qualify for a five or four loan, you've got to be buying a business that includes a piece of real estate and the real estate is worth 51% or more the combined deal value. So let's say you're buying a business, let's say it's doing 400 grand of SDE and you're buying it for a two and a half times multiple. So the business is worth a million dollars. Now, all the other strategies that I mentioned before, the buyer is not borrowing the money. The business is borrowing the money. If you're financing assets, if you're raising equity, if you're seller financing parts of the deal, it's the business that's doing it, not the individual. But when you go to the SBA, it's the individual, it's the buyer that's borrowing the money to buy the business. So your credit score as a buyer is really, really important. So this is what the SBA wants. They want a credit score in the kind of high 600s. Ideally, 690, 700 is where you need to be. Secondly, 
they need justification that the business is in your lane so that you're buying a business in an area that you can add some value to. So case in point, you're a sales guy for IBM and you want to buy a technology company. Great. The SBA are going to fund you. If you want to buy a vineyard, they're going to say, well, hang on a minute. That's not really in your lane. You would have to go and partner with somebody that knows how to run a vineyard. Um, they want to make sure that the buyers, um, either as an individual or within the buying group, have got the chops in the industry. Uh, and whilst you know, you've got big federal guarantees um, backstopping a lot of this financing, you know, the SBA, they're not stupid. They want to make sure that you know, you're doing the deal. Ideally, they want the buyer to be an owner-manager. Um, I've done SBA deals. You know, I don't work in any of my businesses, and I never have. But what they want to make sure is that there's a solid um, number two or there's a solid general manager inside of that business day-to-day. -day. Um, one of the other requirements of the SBA is you can't do deals where there's any vendor take-back of equity. So what I often do with deals is um, I'll, I'll let the seller retain a minority piece of ownership, maybe 10 or 15%. You can't do that with the SBA. It's only to buy the shareholders out completely. If, if, if there's two, so let's say you and I owned a company 50-50, I could do an SBA deal to buy you out, your 50%, and me stay within the business. But um, if an outside buyer came in, they're taking us both out of the business. You can't leave a shareholder in um, an SBA deal. And then the seller of the business has to be out of the company within 12 months. They can't be an employee. They can only be a contractor. You can't do earnouts. And, you know, there's kind of, there's loopholes, there's ways around it. You can have consultancy agreements with, you know, ref share kickers and warrants and all those different things. But classically, those are kind of the SBA rules. But the SBA, it's become a lot easier to do those deals uh, since the CARES Act, where they waived all the fees, the, the federal backstop went up to 90%, and they've just become a lot more creative and agile and flexible in terms of doing deals. The, the only downside with the SBA is the time it takes to actually close a deal. Um, you know, you're dependent on them, their due diligence, their funding process, their credit board sign-off, from finding a deal and signing an LOI, you know, it can take three months to wrap all the financing up. And a lot of sellers, they don't want to wait. So this is why in a lot of cases, I'll, I'll give sellers the two options. I'll say, look, I've got two offers for you. You know, you want a million dollars for your business. I can pay you 800. You get most of the money at closing. It's going to take me 90 days to raise the capital. Or I'll pay you a million for but I'm going to pay you over 10 years and I can do that deal in two weeks. So you can be retired in two weeks. And if I don't pay you the seller financing, you can just take the business back. And you'll be surprised the number of people that say, I'll take deal B. Thank you very much. Um, and then you buy the business. And then if you want to, you can go and do an SBA deal or another deal once you're in it and refinance that seller note and cash the seller out at a discount. Um, but why would you if you've got the cash flow coming out of the business to do it? So and this brings me back to another really interesting point. And I call this, uh, I call it the annuity deal structure. So what's crazy 
right, is, and this is a very, very commonly asked question in mergers and acquisitions. How do you determine the value of a business? Now, where most people get really hung up is it, it's some normalized version of profit or cash flow or SDE, whatever you want to call it, and it has a multiple attached. And the average for a small business is kind of in the two to four range. And there's lots of things that change the multiple. But generally, that's how it works. But what, what few people tend to realize is that often the structure of the deal can change the valuation. Obviously, if you're paying for a business over 10 years, you need to really offer more than if you're paying for it all up front. But then also, a lot of the businesses I look at, I look at the valuation and I think, well, where's that come from? That valuation has no bearing to the underlying financial performance of the business. And, and I'll ask, the, I'm very blunt, and I'll ask the seller, where's the valuation? They say, well, you know, I'm looking to retire. So I called my wealth manager and I said to my wealth manager, I need to make $10,000 a month for the next 20 years as my retirement. What do I need, Mr. Wealth Manager, as a closing payment for my business, less the tax I'm going to pay, for me to invest with you in whatever fidelity money market account you you pick for me that's going to generate me this annuity-type payment? And they come up with a number. So that's the asking price for the business. Yet that can have no bearing whatsoever on the financial performance of the business. Now, I have a strategy for buying those businesses. Because what I will say, as, lo as long as the business generating at least $20,000 a month in cash flow, I will say to the seller, I will be your annuity provider. I'll just pay you $10,000 a month for 20 years. And if I don't pay, you can have the business back. It's more tax beneficial for you because you're not having a big tax bill from a closing payment. You're just paying tax through your retirement income uh, as you receive that money. And again, it, it's speed to deal. Um, I'm finding right now since kind of COVID, we're obviously coming out of COVID now, you know, massively. I was in the States three weeks ago and, you know, whilst I was in the South, it's as, it's as if COVID's never happened. And then <laughs> you say, you know, we've come out of it massively. There's no real restrictions here anymore. Um, you know, I think we've broke the back of it. But a lot of people have come through COVID and whilst their businesses have survived and some have even thrived, a lot of these owners, they're just saying, you know what, I'm done. I survived 9-11. I survived the GFC. I've survived COVID. How many more times do I have to roll with the punches, you know? Um, I went out of my business and I don't really want to wait. And it's, you know, it's early in 2022. It's cold and dark and wet in most places. Get me out of this business. You know, can I get out of this deal in two weeks, four weeks? No, I don't want to wait three months for an SBA deal. Get me out now. If you could pay me 10 grand a month, you can have my business. As long as I get it back if you default. So um, these are some of the big shifts I'm seeing in the market. And again, it all comes down to seller psychology. That I can't emphasize enough how much of that I'm seeing right now and how much of that really goes into the kind of core of how I coach and mentor my deal makers. That's awesome. The... Uh... So we're at uh, 51 minutes now, and we, we try to cut this off right an hour. So the first thing I want to do is make sure people know how to uh, get a hold of you. So I'm going to put this up. 
uh, earlier you said to go to your website. It's uh, dealmakercarl.com for those of you listening and not watching the video. And I'll put it in the show description. So uh, if if you're listening to this and you want to go check out Carl Allen and what he's got to offer, he's got some free stuff there. Matter of fact, we were talking before the show, he really wants you to do the free stuff before you come into the course. So you really know you want to get get to do this. So check out uh, dealmakercarl.com. And I'll put that in the show notes, right? He wanted me to come up. So he gave me a piece of his real estate investment firm. And then I eventually broke out and did my own. But, uh, you know, I guess my lane would be uh, different than others because I, I, I can learn fast. But uh, if it was in real estate or IT, I probably could nail it fairly quick. So, so you have got what I call a horizontal skill set. And like, it's really weird it's kind of ironic that you kind of just gave me your your little backstory there. So what I would say, so you have three of the four characteristics of my most successful deal makers. And let me tell you what they are. So if, if you were to say to me, out the 8,000 plus deal makers that you coach and mentor all over the world, the ones that absolutely crush it, and, and I mean, in some cases, make hundreds of millions of dollars from doing this. They, they fall into four camps. The first one, ironically, is, is females. Um, I don't know whether it's because they follow the rules, they're more rigorous, they're more detailed, uh, they don't cut corners, um, they make exceptional deal makers. The second are retired military. And I think that comes down to discipline, following rules, understanding a process and never deviating from it. You know, if you're in the line of fire and you're not following a protocol, you're going to get killed or people in your unit are going to get killed. So military people through their mindset and their discipline and just their sheer grit and fortitude make phenomenal deal makers. The third are people that have done real estate deals because buying real estate and buying businesses transactionally are very, very similar. There were some nuances in valuation and deal structure, but they're used to originating deals. They're used to deal flow. They're used to vetting. You know, they're, they're used to finding opportunities and doing all those different things. They understand creative financing strategies and all that stuff. And then the fourth trait is marketers or people that are very good at sales, sales and marketing. And that's really powerful for two reasons. Number one, you'll get the whole concept of a deal origination funnel. So you know that it's very rare for you to just go out and find one deal and be able to close that deal quickly without using your own money. You need several horses in the race. And it's like sales and marketing. You have a funnel. Not every prospect that inquires about your product or service is going to buy it. You need you know, a number of those people. But then secondly, as a sales or marketing professional, it's going to be easier for you to add value to the business once you've acquired it. So the good news for you is you have three of the four killer attributes that my most successful students have. So you'll kill this. You have awesome, no awesome. excuses. You're I promise great. you I'm not going to try the fourth one. I don't want to become a female. I'm pretty, no. pretty, pretty so happy you, where I'm at. <laughs> if you were a female, you'd be Nirvana. You'd be a unicorn deal maker. But the fact that you've got three of the other four, no excuses for you, buddy. You you will crush this. And it's interesting you said about the lead flow. Is I've, I'm building out a, 
uh, a website. I bought a, a little domain called ACQHQ, so Acquisitions Headquarters. And the whole purpose of it is to find, uh, I told my team that's building it out and I've got a small, I built teams is what I do. So I do all this stuff. I built teams around it. But uh, I told the team, I want to look at 100 deals this year and, uh, you know, we'll probably do a few of them. But I need yeah. to, you know, in order to pick out some really good deals, I want to see, I want 100 people to raise their hand and say, I'm looking to sell my business yeah. through one of our tools. And, uh, you know, the the marketer, uh, the, I have a guy, I have two people on my team that actually have owned marketing companies of different types. One of them is an analytics just junkie. He can, you know, tweak you know, paid ads and just really make it work. And the other one is a content uh, marketing company. She's, um, you know, uh, does content stuff. But they both said 100. We, you know, that that's not very many. So, I, I, you know, I'm looking forward to let's blow out that all the water this year. But uh, and I totally want to what I want to do with them is go through them, evaluate them, figure out what's in my lane, what fits for me. Yeah. And then kind of do what was in the real estate world. The reason I made so much money in the real estate space was every deal that wasn't a fit for me. I knew who it was for. So I'm yeah. building portfolios of buyers, people I know that are active buying businesses and what they're looking for. So if I find something that doesn't fit me, I kind of already know. Like I can walk into a house right now and there's four or five investors in town. I walk in and go, I don't want this, but I bet this guy does. And it changes the way I structure the deal because I know what their structure is. I know them well yeah. enough to know what they're looking for. Absolutely. Right? So I, I have an inner circle program called Dealmaker Protégé, which are my elite level um kind of coaching students and we, we do that it's always caps at 50 people and when, when we chat on a weekly basis part of the fulfillment is we'll do a deal share so if you find a deal and it's not in your lane you'll know from everyone else in the group that it's going to fit some of those people and you'll get a finder's fee or even a piece of the ownership um you know when the deal closes so that's definitely the way to do it well, I want to thank you for being on the show. Hang out for a couple thank seconds you. when we uh, close the live stream. Sure. I appreciate it. We're at the hour. Actually, we're a couple seconds over the hour. And I want to honor everybody's time, yours and uh, the people listening today. So uh, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Awesome. I'm a the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer -peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T I E. PM.com and check out the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind.